Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hide your children. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of October 3rd, 2022. On this week's show, we're going to talk about how the NFL and the Miami Dolphins handled Tua Tungavailoa's head injury, or more likely head injuries. We'll also discuss Aaron Judge's quest for the American League home run record, or is it the real Major League Baseball home run record? And chess champion and poker pro Jennifer Shahadi will be here to discuss cheating allegations in both those sports. But rest assured, we've all submitted to drug tests, polygraphs, and body cavity searches before the taping of this podcast. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. All seven episodes of our season on 1986 are out now, so binge away. Also in D.C. is Stefan Fatsis. He's the author of the books Wild and Outside, Word Freak, and A Few Seconds of Panic in chronological order. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. Can I praise one year? I guess. Would that be okay? Grudgingly. Mm. The last, the last installment. I mean, Joel, you were awesome. We've already praised you. But the last installment, the man from Fifth Avenue about this dude who ends up being a Russian propaganda star is really fantastic, Josh. Congratulations. And my question for you is, journalistically, so you find this video of this dude who gets taken to Moscow and used by the Soviets um, as an anti-capitalist um, example. And then you discover that he, you know, he was in his, like, 50s in 1986. And then you discover that he's alive? I mean... And cogent and wants to talk, that must have been like journalistic heaven moment for you. It's true. It did feel kind of nice, actually. Yeah, my favorite moments in these shows, and I don't know if you agree, Joel, it's like finding the right people or finding the person in this case and like connecting with that person actually in the moment of doing the interview. You've got to keep yourself on task without asking the questions while also thinking like, Mm -hmm. I'm getting the stuff that I need to do this. So yeah, that was pretty fun. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, Josh does that over and over again in, uh, you know, not just uh, that episode. So yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, this is an opportunity for me to extend the praise, but, uh, I mean, you know, Josh does great work and, uh, this, this season of one year, no, no exception. No exception. So, well, I mean, but you know, Josh is doing the heavy lift here. Don't don't try to put me on the same uh, the same marquee line with you. You know, this is a Josh. 
Levine production, uh, you know, concept, and it, right. it's excellent. Enough. So, anyway. right. um, even before he's been introduced, flattering me, it's the mm-hmm. host of Slow Burn seasons three and six, a proud alum of undefeated Texas Christian University, mm-hmm. which walloped Oklahoma behind the spectacular coaching of Sonny Dykes, mm-hmm. Joel Anderson. Congratulations. Was it the spectacular coaching of Sonny Dykes or the subpar coaching of Brent Venables? Who's you tell Oklahoma us. defenses look a lot like the ones that uh, he left behind when he moved on uh, about 20 years ago from Oklahoma. So glad to see OU's looking like they're, they're getting ready for SEC. They'll be losing by about 30 points every week. <laughs> Joe, you man, know, you're focusing on the play, negative. Play. You, you guys, TCU just crushed Oklahoma, reveling some positive, man. It's Enjoy exciting. It. It's it's great. I mean, no, I'm excited to beat Oklahoma, but like, don't don't try to get me to get excited about Sonny Dykes because that's just not going to happen. Well, they've got a real opponent this coming week, so you put a undefeated Oklahoma Kansas. To the side. They got to they got to take on Kansas. So. Undefeated Kansas well, at Kansas for College Game Day. Big big uh, big week for my alma mater. So yeah, I'm excited about that. I'm excited to lord TCU's greatness over everybody else. But don't don't try to make me praise Sonny Dykes because it's not going to happen. <laughs> In our Slate Plus segment this week, Joel will praise Sonny Dykes. Now, um, (laughs) we're going to talk about our streaming present and future. Some folks have asked us um, how we consume sports these days, so we'll talk about that. And we'll also talk about the Amazon Thursday Night Football presentation. Um, If you want to hear that, you need to be a Slate Plus member. You get bonus segments on this show and other Slate shows. You get to listen to podcasts ad-free, and you get to support us, which is always a nice thing to do. Slate.com slash hangup plus. Slate.com slash hangup plus to sign up. Hey, hang up and listeners. Heads up that we recorded the following segment early Monday morning before learning that Tua Tungovaloa is now in concussion protocol and will be held out of this week's game against the Jets. Trailing 7 to 6 late in the second quarter at Cincinnati on Thursday, Miami Dolphins quarterback Tua Tungovaloa dropped back to pass on second down. Here's a clip Tua rolling left. With the grain, and down he goes. Slung down in his own 48-yard line. Josh Tupu. And uh-oh. That Al Michaels uh-oh came in response to Tua's condition at the end of the play, a sack that ended with a Bengals lineman violently slinging him to the turf. The camera caught Tua rolling over slowly after the hit, his eyes closed, and with his hands crossed and with some call a fencing posture, a neurological response to head trauma. That part is important because Tua suffered what appeared to be a serious head injury the previous Sunday in a win over Buffalo. But Tua was permitted to return to that game with what the team termed a back injury. Now in Cincinnati, with Tua unconscious on the turf, it all seemed like a particularly reckless sequence of events. Over the weekend, the NFL and the NFLPA announced the firing of an unaffiliated neurotrauma consultant involved in clearing Tua the previous Sunday. The League and the Players Association said a review until that process is ongoing, while also adding they agree that changes need to be made to the league's concussion protocol. So, Stefan, as the former NFL player among us, um, what were your initial thoughts watching Tua on the turf Thursday, and how do you think we got here? I was watching the game live on my phone to get the full Amazon Thursday night football streaming experience. And as soon as he was flung to the ground like a fisherman tenderizing an octopus and his head snapped against the turf and he wasn't moving, 
my first thoughts were that his brain was badly injured. You don't have to be a neurologist to make that diagnosis. That was corroborated by the replay shots of Tua's arms bending over his chest with his fingers splayed gruesomely in all directions, the fencing response that you mentioned, Joel. Uh, there have been NFL players who have returned almost immediately to games after exhibiting the fencing response, which after a decade and a half of attention on brain injuries, announcers and reporters still treat as some sort of mysterious medical phenomenon. But the more damning evidence of the Dolphins and the sport's willingness to find loopholes that allow players to play was what happened the previous Sunday against the Bills. Tua was pushed to the ground after a pass. He slammed his head against the turf. He stayed there for a few seconds. Then he grabbed his head. Then he did the head shake, clear out the cobwebs motion. Then he literally collapsed and was helped up. Then he was about to collapse again and was supported by his teammates. Five clear signs of head injury. He went to the Blue Medical Tent, allegedly cleared the league's concussion protocols, and returned for the second half. The point is that as much in the first incident as the second, the evidence that Tua had suffered some brain injury was obvious to anyone who was watching. Meathead football Twitter replied to whoever pointed this out was all, yo, check out Mr. Doctor over here. Well, brain injuries are complicated, their short-term symptoms vary, and the NFL minimized or covered up evidence of brain injury for literally decades. We should not trust them, whether to a past some rudimentary and clearly as the league all but admitted, over the weekend, insufficient cognitive test designed by league and league hire doctors is an evidence of good decision-making. It's evidence that the process is flawed. Ultimately, though, this is about common sense, erring on the side of caution. How hard would it have been, Josh, for the Dolphins to watch the replay and tell Tua, you hit your head and collapsed on the field, give me your helmet, you're done for the day. As for losing the game, which is a fair concern for coaches... I mean, come on, the Dolphins' backup isn't some rookie free agent out of East Southern Idaho. It's Teddy Bridgewater, 29 years old, seven-year veteran, started 58 games, including 15 in 2020 and 14 in 2021, which were his two best statistical seasons, completed two-thirds of his passes, thrown for more than 13,000 yards in the NFL. The Dolphins' season would not have ended if the coaching staff had said, let's make sure Tua is right, we're lucky to have Teddy. <laughs> If they had said the magic words, we're lucky to have Teddy, yes. none of this would have happened. So I agree with everything that you said. I agree that um, the league shouldn't be trusted pretty much on anything, but particularly on this category of thing, that the Dolphins as an organization should not be trusted basically on anything. Recall that the owner, Stephen Ross, is currently suspended and not able to have anything to do with the team because of the investigation stemming from Brian Flores's racial discrimination suit, which the suspension is actually because of tampering with Tom Brady and, and former Saints coach um, Sean Payton. But um, so he wasn't around and had, I, I guess, nothing to do with the decision of whether to um, play him or not play him. So one kind of wonders where the buck stops here. But I, I say all of that as preamble to... Um, the fact that, like, this isn't what the NFL wanted to happen. Like, Stefan, we used to talk about concussions on this show all the time, like mm -hmm. pretty much constantly, but we haven't. And a fairly, I, I didn't go back and look at the show pages, but this is, it, it's become a less and less present part of what we talk about. I feel like 
the NFL has done from their own self-interested PR standpoint, a, a fairly decent job in getting this away from being topic A, which is exactly what they want with all of these protocols, with the independent consultant. And so they're certainly not incentivized in any way to like have a concussion controversy be a, a thing that um, the, the world is talking about instead of like Mahomes versus Brady. Like they would much prefer we would be focusing on that right now. And so they fucked up, Joel. Like, um, and I think the fact that it was so obvious that this is not an edge case that he clearly just with our eyes, you don't have to have any sort of medical degree or PhD to know um, that that guy should not have been playing football. It's going to focus attention back on concussions and brain trauma in a way um, that the NFL is surely unhappy about. And so I'm just kind of, I think we're all confused about why and how that happened. Like, it's not a surprise that the independent consultant, the one guy involved in this who's not an employee of the league office or the Dolphins, is the one who becomes the scapegoat. Um, but there's, you know, this is a situation that invites more reporting. Um, and Mike McDaniel, the coach of the Dolphins, who's been kind of the public face of this from the team side, is definitely giving the nothing to see here. We did everything by the book sort of sort of posture. Um, so we'll see. Yeah, it's tough. Um, and I guess I'm sort of torn because, like everybody, I was um, really scared for Tua when he uh, hit the turf on Thursday night. And I'd actually sort of forgotten until I watched the game. I was like, oh, that's right. He did have that uh, head injury or would appear to be a head injury a few days ago. And so when you put it all together in that context, it was even more horrifying. But I guess... And, you know, maybe people are going to accuse me of being Pollyannish here or naive. I think I'm just a little surprised that everybody believes that the Dolphins um, would risk their credibility and the face of their franchise in such a public spot in this way. And in like week four of what's now a 17-game season. Yeah, you know, and... It would have been real easy for the Dolphins to have said, you know what, we don't, you know, this is a quick turnaround. We're 3-0. and You know, no NFL team wants to give up any week, right? But um, it would have been real easy for them to have said, you know what, like maybe this is just a, a, a too quick of a turnaround. And as you said, Stefan, we've got Teddy Bridgewater. Um, I'm inclined to believe that Mike McDaniel and the Dolphins really did believe that Tua was okay. And that he could play. And he probably put up a hell of a fight, you know, himself and, and, and put on a hell of a presentation behind closed doors for the past four days trying to show them and prove to them, no, I'm fine. I promise you, I'm okay. The players do this all the time. Um, so, you know, I don't want, I, I don't want to extend any credulity to the Dolphins or Mike McDaniel or any of the other things, but at, I'm just kind of surprised that everybody believes that they would lie, like they would bald face lie in front of everybody and then put Tua back out there in front of everybody to get hurt like that. And I don't, it's I don't not think because they were lying. I think it just shows the blind spot in the way that 
NFL teams, football teams, coaches, front offices think. I mean, to me, it's almost not about whether Tua was allowed to play on Thursday after clearing the protocols and being being tested every day, which is part of the NFL's requirements after an apparent head injury on the field. Um, it's more that they let him play the second half. I mean, of the Bills game earlier in the week, because it was a Sunday-Thursday. Um, but if he passes the protocol, though, it, as flawed the, as the protocol but, but is. The protocol is a crutch, Joel. The protocol is an excuse. Like Josh said and I said, it's eye test. I mean, the dude collapsed on the field. You don't collapse with a sore back. We you all don't watch football. shake your head. You don't like, you know, you don't lie unconscious on the turf for five seconds right. with a sore back. Right, but Stefan, we've watched football, like you said, all these years, we used to talk about concussions all the time. So we all have sort of, one way or another, none of us were complaining about the protocol or the way that the NFL did this until this Thursday, right? Like we, I, guess, I don't maybe, know about that. I mean, you know, Chris Nowinski, who runs the Concussion Legacy Foundation, former player at Harvard, former professional wrestler, who's been mm -hmm. one of the biggest advocates for finding better ways to police and treat head injuries, um, tweeted earlier on Thursday that he shouldn't be playing tonight and right. I'm scared for him. I mean, mm -hmm. it was a prediction that he didn't want to come true, but it did. I mean, it, and Josh, when it comes to the, you know, the, the coaching staff and nobody wanting Tua to be hurt, of course they didn't want him to be hurt, but it does show where they just fall short. I mean, Mike McDaniel is 39, you know, Yale history major. He's supposed to be part of this new smart young generation, progressive generation of coaches. And he was like spitting bullshit all week. Absolutely zero patience for will ever put a player in position for them to be in harm's way. That's not what I'm all about. No outcome of a football game would influence me to be irresponsible as a head coach of a football team, he said. And then he said, separately, it's not part of the deal you sign up for. His teammates and myself were very concerned, but he got checked out and it's nothing more serious than a concussion. I mean, what the <laughs> fuck? That's like just bad. Like, who's like running your PR? Who's like telling the head coach, like coaching him and giving him talking points? That's awful. Nothing more serious than a concussion. Yeah, you <laughs> shouldn't say that. The other, the other part of it seems like a response to what Chris Nowinski said to his credit, before the game on uh -huh. Thursday, which mm -hmm. was everyone should be sued and fired. Um, <laughs> this is a guy who's worried right. about getting sued and fired, right. um, potentially. And so, yeah, the protocol in that case is definitely a crutch if you can say, here's what the procedure is. We followed it exactly, and it led us to this outcome. And so, yeah, let's fix the protocol. Let's fire the independent consultant. And what Alex Kirshner wrote for Slate, on Sunday is that um, this is a failure of people, not of like some flow chart, um, that there are people who should have looked and seen um, with their eyes what we could all see and either overrule the box checking or say like, you're not checking the boxes correctly. But I, I think to side with Joel a little bit, like, the protocol and the independent consultant, I think we've all seen that it's, um, there have been improvements. Like th there aren't as many kind of egregious cases like this one in 2022 as there were, you know, five or 10 years ago. And so a case like this 
sticks out more. And it is just extremely alarming that it could still happen today. But, um, you know, with the Amazon broadcast, um, didn't mention anything about um, the injury uh, the previous Sunday against Buffalo. They did a good job in the post game, I think, because whoever was running the show there saw what people were saying on Twitter and was like, we should probably take this more seriously. I'm, I'm serious. Like, I'm sure that's what happened. But at halftime, like, Ryan Fitzpatrick was saying, and I'm sure this is true. He was saying like, yeah, we talked to Tua yesterday and he seemed fine. It's like, okay, I don't know what, what that gets you. But, you know, Al Michaels, you know, he had talked about Deshaun Watson in a kind of similar way. And like, that's another protocol in like a box checking way. Like, all right, I guess we got to talk about the thing that people are talking about. He got all this guaranteed money for whatever reason. We're not going to mention why. Oh, he got, I guess uh, this doesn't look that good, but, um, you know, we got to move on and talk about, you know, Joe, Joe Burrow to Jamar Chase on this next drive. There, So there is, even in this more kind of enlightened time um, on the field, off the field, there is just this entire apparatus in league media, in the television rights holders in, I think, team management and league office as well. It's just like, we got to move past this. You know, we followed the protocol. It's on to Cincinnati, as uh, Bill Belichick would say. Right. And, and, and part of it, Josh and Joel, is that this is so baked into what football is that it's inevitable that the attention on brain injuries is going to wane. I mean, the league is spending close to a billion dollars to settle litigation um, and compensate players from earlier eras because of brain injuries. It's able to say, you know, we're putting on those concussion guards in training camp on the top of helmets and roughing the passer penalties are more are called more frequently. Um, and there's a natural media fatigue to talking about the same thing over and over when it is just part of every single play on a football field and always will be as long as players are playing this game by these rules wearing this equipment. I think the thing is, is that we still don't know what we want from football. Like, we know that the protocol is to make the players safer, but it's also to make us feel better about the game in spite of what we know about the game. That the, a lot of this is... It's important to protect the players from the most egregious head injuries in the game. But we also know that the players are suffering smaller sub-trauma throughout the game, like just every by play. blocking every play, right? And so that contact, that part of the violence of the game is damaging, if not more damaging than the big hits that we see that Tua took, right? So we're trying to feel better about it. And when we saw on Thursday is like, oh, this is the game in all of its raw brutality. And the protocol can only protect us, but for so long from that. And we're counting on the protocol, these unaffiliated neurotrauma consultants, team doctors or whatever, to prevent us from seeing that sort of stuff. And we're really upset about it now that we saw it. But I just think that we're torn and watching that sort of stuff, it just sort of brings to mind, you know, I, I, Chris Nowinski said, you know, um, you know, after he was, you know, basically clairvoyant and was right about, you know, Tua getting hurt, he says, how are we so stupid in 2022, right? Well, I mean, we still play football, man. 
And <laughs> this is, you know, like there's just not really a way to get around it. And, you know, it's important to note here, too, that we still they still have not concluded that Tua suffered a brain injury or a, a concussion against the Bills that previous Sunday. They're still trying to sort that out. Like, obviously, things went you know wrong in the in the process there, but we, they still haven't concluded that. And so what I'm still trying to figure out again is that on Thursday, that hit alone, the guy that slung Tua to the ground is 350 pounds. He's a huge dude. The way he slung him down, that hit alone could have incapacitated Tua the way in which it did. And it wasn't even required for him to have had a brain injury four days earlier, right? So, um, I, you know, I, I, I get why everybody was horrified because it was a horrifying sight. But I think that we're asking football and the NFL and all these other people to do things to protect us from ourselves. And it's just, man, I'm sorry, this is football. It's really scary. It's really horrible. And sometimes you're going to see shit like that. Yeah, I mean, the first play of the LSU... Auburn game on Saturday night was on kickoff coverage. A cornerback for LSU, Seven Banks, slammed mm-hmm. his neck into a dude and had to be carted off the field. Um, and so, where I was watching the game, the conversation was like, "Why do we play this sport?" Like, if if there was some, if at the beginning of every game, and that was it was um, just the way that it happened. It was like. You know, the moment of kickoff, it's like, all right, we're we're settling down for like an evening of watching football. This is going to be a fun game. And then like immediately mm-hmm. it's like the game stops, dead silence. Everybody is um, just waiting to see if this guy is going to be OK, which it seems like he is um, going to be at least in, um, you know, he he was able to travel back with the team and, and all of that. But um, if every game was stopped immediately after the first play for like a 10 minute meditation on why it is that we play this sport as like everybody prays that somebody isn't going to die, then I think we would have a much different um, viewing experience with football. Um, but, you know, it, it takes these, you know, whether it's, you know, unfortunately, like the, the moments when somebody gets paralyzed or a high-profile player like Tua, this happens. It takes those moments to kind of shake us out of our stupor and have, get us to recognize, Joel, what you said. It's like, it's not the um, the big hits like this. It's the sub-concussive trauma on, on every play that we don't see and, and think about. And, and just my last note on the broadcast, they now have special br- special graphics and like they'll have like Jay Feely on the game to talk about like which direction the wind is blowing for important kicks. They'll have like the officiating expert on to talk about, oh, well, you know, at, at, every freaking week we have um, somebody explaining to us like, well, the call on the field is really important. So they need to have conclusive video evidence to overturn it. We get that every week on every single network. We have... Some on ESPN sometimes they'll bring in uh, on Sports Center a segment of an injury expert for fantasy reasons to be like, oh well, if you have this guy on your fantasy roster, the fact that he like broke every bone in his body, he'll be out for eight weeks. But on the broadcast themselves of the games, there's no medical expert who's ever on camera who's ever brought in to say like all right let's talk about this the way that like doctors actually talk about it as opposed to like oh he's moving his extremities or you know what whatever kind of to the crowd Mm -hmm. whatever language they they fall back on and so what they want is to get the person off screen to get the injury off screen they'll talk about it in hushed tones 
when they need to, but there's no, it's not a part of the the game or the broadcast that they really want to linger on. And so we don't have the kind of expertise that would make us actually stop and think about what's what's happening. And I'll, let's finish with one last thought, and this is really for you, Joel, as a former player. I mean, the TCU game, there was a targeting call. Mm-hmm. TCU player drove his head into the Oklahoma quarterback, had to be taken off the field, same exact situation. He seemed completely distraught by what had happened, got kicked out of the game. But the way that the Bengals' defensive lineman flung Tua to the ground and the way that the Bills' defensive lineman pushed him to the ground. You know, football players, Joel, are taught what? To finish the play, to dive into piles, to drive the ball carrier to the ground, to hit the quarterback as much as is possible under whatever the current rules are. And I do wonder whether the next sort of cosmetic change we're going to see in the game is teaching players to not do that as much, to not make that last what can appear superfluous, um, aggressive, injury-potentially-inducing move, diving into piles, driving people to the ground even more. Um, You know, instead of throwing two or 360 degrees to the ground, you know, just dropping them down. It's hard instinctually, but I think we're going to get to the point where coaching and rules are going to change to try to protect all players, not just quarterbacks. Joel, what do you think? Yeah, we'll see. I mean, we have the, the, these targeting uh, penalties every week, and it's always, you know, oh, man, couldn't pull up really tough, you know, to put his head in, on the fly. So I don't know, man. When the bodies are live out there, it's really hard to ease up. Hard. And that's what the flags are for. So uh, maybe we'll see that, but I tend to doubt it. I just think we're just going to have to come to grips with the fact that this is a really bad game and people get hurt at it, and either we're going to have to be okay with it or we're not. In the next segment, Aaron Judge in the chase for 62. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. On Sunday in the Bronx, Aaron Judge went 0 for 3 with a walk in the Yankees' 3 1 loss, the Orioles, finishing off a three game series in which the supposed superstar got one measly hit and stayed stuck on not measly 61 home runs. Judge has four more games against the Texas Rangers in the next three days to try to pop at least one more and break Roger Maris's Yankees and American League record. The only people ahead of him and Maris on the all-time single-season list 
are a trio of National Leaguers who all played in the sports steroid era. Sammy Sosa, who has seasons of 63, 64, and 66 homers, Mark McGuire, 65 and 70, and Barry Bonds, who cranked 73 home runs back in 2001. Joel, I have a pretty good sense of how you feel about all of this, given that you tweeted a complaint on Saturday that ABC was cutting into interrupt college football, quote, to show Mike Judge not break a record. But Whatever. <laughs> if, you'll, if you'll indulge us for a moment, uh, what do you Whatever. make of the conversation about the real home run record and, and what Judge is aiming for here? Well, I don't want to insult uh, Aaron Judge. Look, I, I'm becoming my father, okay? I just get people's names wrong or mixed up. I was thinking of Mike Stanton and, and Aaron Judge, and I kind of mixed the names up. So sorry about that, And you that, must Yankees be a huge fans. Beavis and Butthead fan. So I, well, actually, fun. I do have the DVD series. I used to. I don't, I don't have DVDs anymore, but I did have Beavis and Butthead on DVD. Um, but, uh, yeah, look, so I don't want to insult Aaron Judge. I mean, he's, he's in the midst of a great run. Um, he's well on his way to finishing in sixth place all time for home runs <laughs> in a season. And even he acknowledges that 73 is the real home run record. Um, but I can't tell if the people driving this are moralists about drug use or if they're just Yankees fans. And I just truly hope there's not much crossover among those groups because so much of what the Yankees fans enjoyed over the past 25 years, um, it, it likely didn't come all clean, okay? So I, I think the thing is, is that we're being really stupid about all of this, right? That, well, you know, this is the real record. Aaron Judge is playing in the non-steroid era of sports. And as if we didn't just go through this with Fernando Tatis just earlier this year, um, one of three major leaguers to get hit with a penalty for using PEDs already. Um, what makes people think and I'm not accusing Aaron Judge of anything, that this is not a steroid error, right? Um, I would love to hear, we, I, it would have been great to have had our friend David Epstein on here because I remember something he said from an interview from 2018. And it talked to, it was addressing the idea that minor leaguers test positive for PEDs a lot more often than major leaguers. And he said in this interview, he said, they are more likely when minor leaguers test positive and get suspended, they are more likely to get promoted. So there's some more deterrent value, but you can still dope. And the risk ward calculation is still in favor of taking that risk for most people. So here we are a few years later, one of the game's brightest stars already been hit for testing positive for PEDs. And we're going to sit up here and be naive enough to believe that like things that have previously been done under the taint of PED use, that that no longer is a factor in baseball. Again, not accusing Aaron Judge of anything, but we're looking at all over in, in sports, Tom Brady playing to the age of 45, sprinters routinely running lower than 9.8 seconds in the 100-meter dash, basketball players uh, playing longer than ever before in their career, have you know extended their primes, in ways that were unthinkable even a generation ago. And now all of a sudden, we're just supposed to be like, well, hey, man, this guy's hit 61 home runs. He must have done it the right way. I mean, just come on, get the fuck out of here. Yankee fan here, checking in. Um, <laughs> yeah, I could give a shit about, you know, this the sort of Yankee-centricness of this, um, which plays into this. You know, how many times have we seen 
in the nightly coverage over the last two weeks um, on the MLB network or ESPN or TBS or whoever is carrying or is allowed to carry a Yankee game on uh, on cable television. How often have we seen, you know, the pan shots out to the retired numbers in center field and the, the, the monuments and the talk of Maris and the cuts to Roger Maris's poor son who's had to go to every fucking game waiting for Aaron Judge to tie and then break his that father's... That guy is not uh, upset about being on camera. <laughs> no, clearly not. Um, but... You know, this is obviously silly and manufactured. There is no, you know, I mean, like American League, National League, okay, whatever, like interleague play, these distinctions are kind of meaningless at this point. And as soon as there is a universal DH, these leagues like are completely irrelevant in the designations, at least in a current sense, if not historically. Barry Bonds holds the record for the most home runs in the season. Full stop. Is it interesting that this six foot seven boring, by the books, clearly an amazing baseball player who whose career has sort of blossomed in his late 20s, he's 30 now, um, is breaking this longstanding, cherished mark. Yeah, it's kind of cool. And it's the Yankees, and that's how the media works, so I'm not surprised at the attention. So in, in putting together some research on this, we, uh, you know, assembled some point counterpoints here. <laughs> My favorite. So Rolling Stone had this kind of trollish headline, Aaron Judge ties the real home run record that was making people angry in, in exactly the way they, they wanted it to. But my favorite sincere kind of rendition of the real home run record is 61 was from Fred Bowen in the Washington Post's <laughs> kid post, kids post section. Uh, and here's an excerpt from that. But what about the record set with the help of PEDs? Sorry, but it's hard for me to accept that a record set by a cheater is a real record. I think the real single-season home run record is Maris's 61 in 1961, mm. and I am rooting for Judge to beat it, says Fred Bowen in Kids Post. And that's kind of the level of the, the discourse that we have here. <laughs> cheating is bad. We'll get to more cheating in our next segment. But cheating is bad. Judge is not cheating. And so that's the real record, which um, it is a very kind of kids post thing to say that records that I don't like aren't real. Like, like and that that's steroids like, are mm. bad, Josh. <laughs> exactly. But that's the distinction, Joel, that I think that isn't being made in these in these conversations. It's not just that people are arguing that I, I would say not a huge number of people, let's not overstate it, but that the people that are arguing it are saying like, not just that judge, we should consider judge to fit the most home runs in, in major league history, but that kind of ugly history, things that have happened in America that we don't like, we could just pretend didn't happen. Like, for instance, that Babe Ruth didn't play against black players. Right. Or that the Negro Leagues, only recently we've begun to recognize that statistics in the Negro Leagues are um, are real and should be considered uh, alongside ones in, uh, you know, the American League and, and National League. So if we're going to be doing this whole, like, selective history gambit and saying, um, you know, some things uh, are true that have happened and some things aren't true, then that's a whole can of worms. I'm not <laughs> yeah. sure that Kids Post wants to be, uh, wants to be opening. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's the, that, is the, that is the thing, right? That, you know, nobody is Critical talking about... Critical baseball theory underway. 
Right. The, ba- the, ba- the Babe Ruth and Roger Maris mostly played against teams that did not have very many black players or, or while the Negro Leagues were going in. And so, you know, it, you know, people, of course, they don't see they don't very often critique those records. Right. And the only time again, when we talk about this is when we're like, whoa, you know, the counterpunch is the hey, by the way, Babe Ruth didn't play against black players. You know, um, so this is the only time we talk about this. But I guess the thing is, I'm a, I'm cynical because I'm like, who is calling for this? Like, who's asking for these cuts? Is this it? Is this? You know, a really cynical attempt from broadcasters to gin up interest in baseball down the stretch. Like, is anybody really calling for no, this? I should have said it's not. It, I should have said it's. It it kind of combines two of our, our of our last like ra- rounds here of this conversation. It's it's not just kids post. It's the Roger Maris's kid mm-hmm. who is like having press conferences mm-hmm. saying the judge is going after the real record, which is like the whole like Yankee supremacy thing. And it's also like Roger Maris Jr. has this like 61 Outfitters company with like the 61 logo, which apparently has to do with hunting for some reason. So you can (laughs) combine your love of non-steroidal home run records with your love of antlers. I don't know. It doesn't really make much, much sense. But if you're in a particular part of the culture war Venn diagram in America, maybe that um, is, is apparel that you want to be rocking. But like there, to the extent that this, Joel, to the extent that this argument is being made, it's, it's, it is coming from like the Maris family. And there's this idea that like there's a, there's a lineage between the true record holder, Roger Maris, and the potential true record holder, Aaron Judge. Yeah, I mean, I, they're free to feel that way. I guess the issue is that everybody else has sort of glommed onto this. Um, and we have acting to pre- like it's a legitimate argument. Yeah, acting and pretending like right. this is a real thing. And look, I, I tend to believe that ABC, uh, the Disney network of, in the Disney network of channels or whatever, they're the ones that have an incentive to drive this because they've got, you know, uh, content to share. They've got, you know, and, and they could gin up some interest in some baseball games. I mean, I cannot imagine that the Yankees Rangers or even especially Yankees Orioles series would be of national interest if not for this. And so it's a real the good, Orioles had swept, they would have still had a mathematical chance to make the playoffs. Yeah, we should really <laughs> talk about the Orioles because they've been, they've been, uh, talked about how, you know, how they've been running the organization the past few See, years. I, I, but I just think that like the attention is normal going back to the, so is it? East, East Coast media bias and Yankees legacy and true Yankee nonsense. Giancarlo Stanton of the Yankees hit 59 home runs. Not when he was playing with the Yankees, though. Mm-hmm. And if he had been playing for the Yankees, I think we would have seen similar attention be paid. I mean, Aaron Judge also is a perfect sort of creation. I mean, he wears a weird number for a Yankee. He's six foot seven. As I said before, he's boring. He's bland in a sort of Derek Jeter way. He doesn't say anything typically interesting to the media. Um, he seems to be a genuine good guy. Um, doesn't drink. You know, he's a clean cut. He has done things the right way, which is what Roger Maris Jr. actually said. Um, so he is a good sort of character for this narrative. And once you get to the narrative, then you are naturally going to get to Barry Bonds and Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa were frauds. I mean, as for the Yankees, I mean, Alex Rodriguez and Roger Clemens played for the Yankees. Mm -hmm. Um, 
that the, if you don't think that there were players in the 50s, 60s, and 70s that were taking amphetamines, then you know nothing about the history of baseball and breaking records and getting inducted into the Hall of Fame. This is all sort of nonsense. Um, and we'd all be much better served if we just said, oh, it's kind of cool that he's breaking Roger Maris's record while wearing the same uniform and his Roger Maris's number doubled on the back. Um, good for him. You know, and if he gets to 73, we can celebrate something different. But wait, what, what continues to make us so credulous about this stuff? Like, why are we, you know what I mean? Cause how do we always end up back here again? That, we oh, want to be Clint- credulous, don't we, Joel? Don't we want to believe or someone no. wants to believe that cares about this shit? <laughs> why do we Jeff care? Perlman writing in CNN or someone writing for, or Joel Sherman writing for the New York Post or somebody writing, you know, some other Blog. I mean, they want to believe and make this sort of this disingenuous argument that, oh, this guy must be clean. Everybody knows I'm a huge track fan. I if and I'm not accusing anybody of anything. If you told me Usain Bolt had tested positive for using, you know, horse dewormer, whatever, I don't know, whatever, you know, whatever. <laughs> That's not a performance enhancer, but you get what I'm saying. It would not matter at all. Because I, I saw Usain Bolt run. I saw yeah. that It would not shock you at all either. It wouldn't shock me. So I'm just like, well, I mean, but I don't need, I don't need the pretense of clean to enjoy sports. Like I'm enjoying performance, not like what I think these athletes are doing on the side. I, they're, look, man, we just talked about Tua Tonga-Valoa playing. Like we know that athletes will do anything to play and to exceed. And so... I, I'm not even trying to consider the world of possibilities of things that they're doing to put themselves in front of us in any given, in any given competition. So again, like, what is the focus? Like, why are we so focused on, oh man, y'all know that guy probably used some nandrolone or whatever, you know, like it just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. That's not the way to enjoy sports. I just don't, I don't need, that is not a requirement for me to enjoy sports. And I don't understand why other people are so caught up into that. Just enjoy the performance, enjoy the records. Yeah. You don't well, need to worry about the I, training I would, methods. I will say this. I, I think there is maybe a stronger counter argument than we've aired so far, so I will air it now. Number one is, um, Stefan, you and I grew up um, following this sport super closely, and 61 is just like a fabled mm-hmm. number. And it's the number because... And, and you can put the steroid stuff to the side. It's like... It, it's it's like in Tractal, when a record stands for decades upon decades, that number gets imprinted in your mind and becomes the sort of like mythical barrier that needs to be crossed. And then when it got broken um, six times within a three-year stretch in the late 90s and early 2000s, those numbers don't stick as much. Because it's like, what even is the record anymore? It's just like 63, 65, 68, 70, 73. And it, it's just like... It's 73. It's, I mean. it, it is 73, but it just, <laughs> yeah, right, it, yeah. just became, it just became so easy to breach it during that period that... Um, if it, it was easy, then somebody that wasn't Barry Bonds, Sammy Sosa, or Mike, Mark McGuire would have done it. That's the, that's the, that's the thing. Which, well, I think Josh the person, is saying that the person that did the three record people was doing Bonds. it six times means that it is easier than it was for the previous 60 years. So there are eras in baseball... Joel, where it's like the dead ball era, or it's like mm-hmm. a 
a better era for hitters or a better right. era for pitchers is like what we're seeing now. Right. And like, if you want to have your head in the sand and say that steroids had nothing to do with it, you can just say that that period was like a good era for hitters. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so this season is like one of the best seasons for pitchers that there's ever been. And so in some mm-hmm. ways it's like more impressive right. to see what judge is doing this All season. All those pitchers are clean. And of course the guy that's having success against these pitchers Probably clean. That's what we're all supposed to believe here. Well, and the other argument that you're not acknowledging is, yeah, the reason that we know Fernando Tatis was taking PEDs is because he got suspended for taking PEDs. He tested positive for, if, the, for a particular PED if, that if is If Barry that Bonds, Mark McGuire, and Sammy Sosa Dick. had gotten suspended because people were because MLB was testing back then, then they wouldn't have the record. I mean, the, no, I don't. The thing is, is that it's harder. It, it, it's, it's harder. It's the presumption now. that the testing, the testing is like going to catch everything. I mean, if we had our friend, David well, there wasn't Epstein testing here, back then, right? But I'm just again, we know that in sports, that the cheaters are well ahead of the test. Like if David Epstein was here, David, will you, will you, will you, will you respond to this this segment <laughs> one way or another? I hope you listen. But anyway, like we know that the cheaters are way ahead of the testing. So like the fact that you test positive is not indicative of the fact that like you're an anomaly and that you got caught. It's just that you were sloppy. Like you got sloppy in your process, and that's how you ended up testing positive. That's the thing with, with Tatis that like. He got caught, but like it doesn't mean that he's the only one. Nobody should sit up here and believe that, that just because he got caught, that, well, the testing, you know, they would have caught everybody else in previous eras. No, like more than likely, Tatis learned, learned this from other people, and there's other people in his team, in his group of people that are testing and, do, and doing all this other stuff, and they just haven't gotten caught. But like, I don't, I mean, I guess I haven't grappled with the fact that, yeah, well, maybe if they'd been testing back then, they would have caught Mark McGuire or whatever. But I just don't, I don't know, man. I just. It would, it would be much easier to have this conversation if the people on the like anti bonds side weren't like moralistic mm-hmm. prigs. Because, like, Joel, the reality is that once they instituted testing, the numbers of home runs that people were hitting went way down. And it's not like, once they instituted the like across the board testing, everyone was still hitting the same number of, of home runs. And now like Judge for the first time, and I guess Stanton hit 59 too. There is something impressive about the fact that in an era when the baseline, like the next, what's the next highest home run total this year, Stefan? Like 42 or 42? something? This isn't like a season where every where like three different guys are hitting over 60. He's like a huge outlier, which is a very impressive. Well, it is yeah, very uh, impressive. I mean, we are also, let's point out, celebrating Albert Pujols getting to 700 home runs for his career, mm. um, which is a remarkable achievement. Albert Pujols started mm. playing in 2001, mm. the same year that Barry Bonds hit 73. Albert Pujols' first six years in the big leagues, home runs, 37, 34, 43, 46, 41, 49. That's a lot of home runs. I mean, should we be suspicious of Pujols? Should we care what happened in 2001 and 2 and 3 before fuller testing was implemented? You know, is Albert Pujols a a demigod baseball player? Yeah, he's at 700 home runs. Is it Mm. possible he quote-unquote cheated, yeah. I mean, how dare we? I mean, God. I mean, you know, it came, it came in the testing era. So, I mean, this, this late career resurgence, it's just a miracle. You know what I mean? Like, there's, it, 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 we would never want to suggest that anything untoward had happened here. I mean, they test now, right? So, I mean, clearly, 
I mean, we would never we would never assume that anything untoward was going on in the background here, right? If everybody is taking the exact same like horse steroids that they were taking in the early 2000s, why don't people hit as many home runs anymore? Well, because everybody's not Barry Bonds. I mean, that's so the, everybody's everybody's I mean, not Sammy Sosa because the pitchers also took horse steroids in the in the early two thousands. Everybody's not I mean, Mark exactly. McGuire. We, we know Full that Roger stop. Clemens was taking that stuff too. I mean, I just I, you think again, Mark McGuire is like some historically amazing player in the history of America? So again, we're talking about records and outliers, and so yeah, so the, at the margins or, or the the median player is going to reflect the median standard is of that time. But we're talking about outliers here. Everybody wasn't hitting 73 home runs back then. It was Barry Bonds. And it was Mark McGuire, who was a great home run hitter going back to the late 80s. Like, I, I didn't follow 49 baseball. 49 home runs as a rookie, Mark Luis McGuire. Gonzalez was hitting 50 home runs. What, why isn't anybody even hitting 50 home runs now? Brady Anderson hit Brady, 50 home I, runs. Well, I, can't, I can't wait until Aaron Judge goes into the Hall of Fame. Okay? Because, I mean, is he, is, he, is, he, is, he, is he clearly bound for the Hall of Fame? Is that my under... Like is he is he that guy or is he or is he Luis? No, Gonzalez? I'm on record as saying he's gonna like fall off a cliff. Right, that's my, okay. that's my prediction. Right. Yeah. Okay. And the and the four hundred million dollar contract he gets in this offseason is going to be a disaster. Up next, cheating in chess and poker, allegedly. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The 2022 U.S. Chess Championship begins on Wednesday in St. Louis. The top-seeded men's player is three-time overall and two-time defending champ Wesley So. But the name in the news is the eighth seed, 19-year-old Hans Niemann. At a tournament a month ago, Niemann defeated the world champion Magnus Carlsen. Carlsen promptly withdrew from the event, raising all sorts of speculation. And when they were paired again in another tournament a couple of weeks later, Carlsen resigned after making just one move. How come? Carlsen's actions implied that Neiman was a cheater. Neiman would admit that he had, in fact, cheated in online events when he was 12 and 16 years old, but said he'd never cheated in an in-person game, which is pretty hard but not impossible to do. In a statement, Carlsen called cheating an existential threat to the game and claimed, without offering any evidence, that Neiman had cheated more frequently and more recently than he'd admitted. Chess officials are investigating both Neiman's history and Carlson's allegations. There was also a cheating allegation at a live-streamed poker tournament last week. And joining us now is someone who can discuss both games. Jennifer Shahadi is a two-time U.S. women's chess champion and a professional poker player. She's also the author of the book Chess Queens. Hey, Jen, welcome back to the show. Hello. Thank you so much. 
Well, let's start with Carlson. He's a huge and transcendent figure in chess. He's got enormous media clout. Is he using his power and influence here to raise an important issue, or is he cruelly and unfairly trashing a young player on the rise, or both? Well, it's definitely a very risky move. You know, we we talked about, you talked about poker in the intro. Um, Magnus Carlsen himself is a poker player. And I, I, I will say there was one immediate positive from his actions. Um, in poker, whenever you have a live stream, of course, there's a delay. So people watching the, the poker players play don't have immediate access to the cards. Otherwise, they could text their friend, hey, your friend has aces here, fold. Your opponent has aces here, fold. So, of course, there's always been delays in poker live streams. But until Magnus's allegations, or be, even before his allegations, when he um, dropped out of the Sinkfield Cup, you know, shocking the chess world, um, there was no standard of that in chess. So basically, you were watching a chess tournament, you were seeing the exact moves as they were being played, which on one hand is very fun, but of course could really facilitate bad actors, right? Now, in a tournament like the Singfield Cup, there are already a lot of anti-cheating measures in place, the U.S. chess championships. But there are other larger tournaments where it's actually pretty difficult to, you know, check every single person for all types of devices. So now it's actually, like, seems kind of obvious that we have this delay. Stefan asked you about Carlson. I would like to ask you about Hans Niemann, the, the 19-year-old. Because obviously, like, mm -hmm. this is just, uh, this is sort of new to me, the idea that, oh, these, like, these teenage prodigies that are so great in the game. So who is he, and, like, how much have these allegations affected him in his career? You know, I think a lot of people are really concerned because he is such a young man and he's getting all this insane amount of attention um, and so much of it is negative. Um, now, whether or not he cheated and the extent of it, he did admit to cheating twice online. Everyone in the chess world is in strong agreement that he is extremely strong player and extremely talented. And that, of course, is why it's so confusing. Is he just one of the most talented players in American history since Bobby Fischer and Hikaru Nakamura? Or is he really, really good and also using some assistance? There's, there's no question that he's really good at chess. Um, in fact, uh, my brother used to work with him in different chess camps and just was like astonished by how quickly Hans was improving. That's something also that Jacob Agard, another famous trainer, has commented on, that his skyrocketing success um, is extremely unusual, but can also just be borne out by how much talent he has. Um, that said, you know, he's obviously a pretty tough kid. And in addition to getting a lot of a negative attention, I think he's getting some positive attention too. Um, the big question is going to be whether he can continue his improvement and, you know, prove that he probably wasn't cheating. Um, or if he's going to, you know, potentially um, crumble. Um, and if, you know, of course, if further allegations come out and further evidence comes out, that will give us more information. Uh, but I, that's something that I think the mainstream is a little confused by. Um, they, I think a lot of people think that Hans uh, cheated from the mainstream because he cheated twice online. What they don't understand is cheating online in chess is extremely different from cheating over the board. Um, online chess uh, is played um, on so many different levels, and usually money is not involved at all. It's extremely easy to cheat. It doesn't mean that it's okay. 
And I think that's really what this is kind of bringing um, to the fore. What types of punishments should there be for this kind of like easier type of cheating? So the way that this first, I think, got a lot of people's attention was Elon Musk sharing this allegation that maybe he was using anal beads to get information, which is just obviously it's salacious, seems ridiculous. Um, but it, I, I guess a couple things. Number one, it gets into this kind of like fantastical realm, right? And Magnus, it feels like, is feeding into it by saying, you know, I have reasons to think this. There's things I know that I can't say, which I, I think is kind of irresponsible. Like if if you're, if you know something, then say something or don't say anything at all. If you feel like you have some information but need time to develop it, don't just like throw this out and and uh, attack this person with no evidence. But also with the anal beads thing, it suggests kind of like you said, Jen, that it's really difficult to cheat over the board. I mean, there have been people that have smuggled things in their shoes, right? There's, you know, a common thing is people sneaking a phone into the bathroom and taking bathroom breaks. But it's not like, you know, you can... I'm trying to even think about other ways to do it. But the idea is you need to somehow get information from a computer into your brain, right? Like what a, what a chess engine would tell you to do. And if you're getting wanded to see what devices you have, if people are looking at you every second, it's it's hard to think of ways to do that undetected. Absolutely. It, it does seem like it would be very difficult. Now, the anal beads idea kind of started as a joke. Um, and it went viral because obviously everybody needed a little comic relief. You know, it's no fun when everything about your beloved game is all about chess. So um, when the anal bees joke started spreading, <laughs> it just went like wildfire. Now, um, is it possible for a Morse code um, accomplice to be relaying you moves via anal beads? Yes. Would anybody choose that method over, you know, the shoe or the ear? I can't imagine <laughs> unless, you know, they had that that fetish, I suppose. Um, but yes, it's it, apparently it, it's it's difficult, but maybe not as difficult as you think. Um, for instance, I think there are some like uh, ear inserts that maybe metal detectors don't pick up. And uh, yeah, that that would probably be the number one way. Um, the hard part is also, though, that most of these methods would require an accomplice. So that's why that that delay that's been implemented in more chess tournaments, and I think will continue to be implemented in more chess tournaments, is so key. Because without a delay, an accomplice from literally anyone in the world could be like feeding you those moves from the other side. Um, you know what? What really troubles me about this is with Carlson's behavior. I'm with Josh on this. I just I I just don't understand his motivation here and the lack of willingness to to sort of cut Hans Niemann a break until we know if there's any truth. Because if we know anything, Jen, about these mind sports that are played online predominantly, it's that cheating happens all the time because you can cheat. Um, but the kind of egregious sort of higher stakes cheating in person is obviously very difficult to prove. And the one point with Neiman is that 
He's admitting to stuff that he did when he was 12 and 16, when kids are, their brains aren't fully developed, there is a tendency to overvalue winning, um, and the, they're, they sort of are tempted to cheat. The biggest in my game, in Scrabble, the biggest on-board live cheating is mostly involved kids. Um, and on online, same thing in online tournaments. I've run a couple with kids. We had some, you know, algorithms detected cheating. Um, but isn't the counter-argument that Neiman is still a kid and 16 years old is three years ago? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is one of the counter-arguments. I mean, I think the counter-counter-argument would be that he, as Jen said, is not a fraud when it comes to playing. He is a legitimate, I don't know what level he is at now, grandmaster level, right, Jen? That you don't, that just doesn't happen by cheating. You cannot cheat your way to be a grandmaster, I don't think, in any of these mind sports, nor is the incentive or the desire there for most people. If you're really good at this, you want to be really good at this. You don't want to get caught. And I think when you reach 19, I mean, everybody is different, and maybe he's a cheater over the board, but you would think that you're that good. You don't really need to be using anal beads or ear inserts. Yeah, I think you make a really good point. I think the biggest problem with what Magnus did, from my point of view, is the way that it affected the tournament. Um, but I can also sympathize with what he did, even though I don't agree with it, because imagine his shoes. He... Um, one thing that that leaked um, somewhat recently was that um, he didn't want to play in the Singfield Cup when he found out that Hans Niemann was a last-minute replacement. So Hans was a last-minute replacement, and he was thinking of withdrawing when he found that out. Then, you know, also Hans has a lot of trash talk for him. So he already it doesn't really want to be in this tournament anymore. He's playing against somebody who he knows cheated online. It makes it difficult to play against him. He plays worse than he normally does, he loses the game. So you can kind of see like his brain like is not completely informed by um, the facts. It's also emotional. Like he might be the best chess player in the world, but there's still emotions at play. And I can sympathize with those emotions. But the problem is dropping out of these tournaments, withdrawing from a game, it actually affects the overall standings of the tournament. It affects players other than Hans. So well, it takes yeah, over the event. Well, and Jennifer, I'm also just kind of curious, like, somebody accused of cheating at this level in chess, like, do they ever really get the chance to clear their name? Like, it just seems like the allegation at this point is, <laughs> has gone so much further that, like, it's going to be really hard for Hans to disprove the idea that he was cheating. Because it just seems like the, the allegation in and of itself is so salacious and so, and it's coming from a guy with the credibility uh, of being a champion that, like, it didn't seem that Hans will be able to sort of shake this allegation, or is that, or am I making too much of it? You might be right. I tend to be overly optimistic about people and think that if Hans Niemann um, continues to have really strong results and there's no more evidence that emerges, there's some kind of graceful solution where Magnus can say, I was right to be suspicious because you cheated online, but I'm dropping my suspicions and like, you know, the chess world could all be like happy <laughs> and move towards a better future. But yeah, that other people think, no, it's impossible because there are some people who read about in the mainstream news that will never check in again. Um, so yeah, it, it's a good point. Hans, though, also has a lot of fans that never would have known who he was if it wasn't for that. So it kind of brings into a lot of bigger questions of media and whether um, all publicity is good publicity for chess and for the players involved. I mean, Stefan, what you 
said about if you're a grandmaster, you're not going to want to cheat. That seems super naive to me because just like Barry Bonds was the greatest player in the world and took the the cream and the clear because, you know, he probably wanted to be even greater. And the margins, it, it's like if you're a grandmaster and and Jen, you can check me. You can check me on this. You're going to be better at chess than like almost every human mm-hmm. uh, that's ever existed. But also, you might be way worse than the best grandmaster. Like the the margins can be really small and and really large, depending on how you look at it. And so maybe what you need is just like one little hint. During the game, you don't exactly. you don't need a lot of information, but um, don't these games, Jen, just come down to like if you had not made a, a blunder in one move, like it can elevate you from being really great to being the best. Yeah, it's really scary because, of course, the the most um, dangerous cheating is by somebody who's already very, very smart and very, very good because then they would literally only need like one or two signals per game to have a devastating edge over their opposition. If you have uh, somebody who's not good at chess cheating, they literally need help every move and eventually they'll get caught. There's even been cases where the organizer gives them like a basic made and one. Like somebody who's who's winning every game, and then they're asked to solve like a back rank checkmate, and they can't get it. And like that is that that is a it's test like an, that it's like a capture, like prove you're not a robot. <laughs> exactly, or yeah, or prove that you are a robot in this case. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think that Josh, to respond to your point, yeah, that's right. And I I don't know if I'm being naive or I'm being optimistic or I'm using my own experience in Scrabble, where the very very top players. Um, are dedicated to the game itself. There's never been an example in Scrabble of at the very top of the sport um, uh, somebody being caught cheating in person. But that has happened in chess. But it has happened in chess. And, you know, the stress levels are much higher in chess. The pressure is much higher in chess. And, yeah, you're right. 19 isn't that much different than The financial rewards are higher in chess. Yes, that is true as well. And in poker, Jen, but before we um, run out of time here, there was this viral moment this past week, which is different than um, what we're dealing with. So with with Magnus and Hans, it's just all kind of allegation and insinuation, and there's nothing for us really to look at on on video, right? But in this poker hand, um, and, and maybe you can describe to folks who haven't seen it, there's this kind of forensic analysis happening where we all become amateur sleuths and try to figure out um, if there's cheating afoot here. Yeah, that was a very interesting hand where an extremely respected high stakes pro, um, Garrett Adelston, um, made a really big bluff as he's wont to do against a, a newer player, um, Robbie J. Liu. And um, she she called off with a jack high. Um, jack four was a specific hand. And I don't know how much your listeners know poker, but the board was 10, 10, 9, um, 3 with two different flush draws. So he could have had a lot of draws. So it kind of made sense for her to call with a hand that's not as strong as usual, especially against this aggressive player. But with her exact holding, and this is the problem, with the exact holding that she had, and she did call with this jack high hand, um, and ended up winning against his eight, seven of clubs, which gave him a flush draw and a straight draw. He's actually losing to a lot of his bluffs, right? So even when he is bluffing um, with a hand that he thinks is bad, 
it's actually better than Jack Eye. So that's why the call was so astonishing and people were shocked by it. And the first instinct of a lot of viewers was there might be foul play here. And unfortunately, it, it created a real firestorm in the poker world, which is extremely similar to the chess world. So the, I was going to say the foul play was that she must have known what he had. Well, now I think I think a lot of people thought that when they first saw the hand, because, you know, there's been a lot of cheating scandals in poker and the hand was so outlandish that like that might be your first instinct. Honestly, almost anyone's first instinct might be that. But as people have kind of calmed down and look all looked at all the evidence and well, I mean, not that there's not evidence per se, but like playing history and plausible explanations. For instance, one thing that people noticed is that the, the hand previous, she had jack three. And, you know, these poker sessions are very long. And eventually she said that she got the two mixed up. So she had thought she had jack three this hand, not the other hand. And there was a three on the board of the hand that she made the call. So there are actually like plausible explanations that seem to make more sense than cheating. It's kind of like Occam's razor. Cheating is pretty complicated. You know, you need, first of all, she seems to be very wealthy. So why would you even bother? Secondly, it requires an accomplice and to hack into a system of like a very respected new live stream that would have no incentive in doing that. So just with Occam's razor, these other explanations seem to make more sense. But it has created a firestorm. Yeah, and, and there is a similarity here in the Garrett Adelstein respected player publicly accused her mm-hmm. of cheating. And I don't think has walked that back. And he said that after um, the hand was over, they like walked into some back area and she offered to give him his money back. Um, and so it's the question of just like, who has authority in these games? What are the proper venues and modes to make an allegation like this? And then who's inclined to be Believed, And in this case, you have the further dynamic of it being like an experienced man accusing a less experienced woman, which leads to all sorts of kind of charges and counter charges about, um, you know, what what's afoot here. Yeah, it created a lot of sexism and misogyny, like after the fact, like just people saying very disparaging things about the player, kind of digging into her background. Um, and it also went viral in t- feminist Twitter. So it, it, it kind of on both sides, like there's a lot of misogynists attacking her, but then there's a lot of feminists like celebrating her, but often like celebrating the Jack Four call as like a brilliant play that was all about like reading people over math. So it's like they're kind of getting getting it wrong. And that makes Garrett look even more ridiculous. But the spirit of what they're thinking that there's misogyny in poker is correct. So it's. Uh, a really kind of um, debacle. And I'd say in poker, it's even worse than in chess because chess is a very respected sport. So when they hear about cheating, they're like, oh my God, I didn't even know cheating was possible in chess. But when they hear about it in poker, unfortunately, they're like, yeah, well, what do you expect? Of course, there's a cheating scandal. Of course, people think a woman cheated, but they're wrong. So I, I, I love poker and I love the math behind it. And I kind of like to see that flip around a little bit here. But I think the funny part is, if we can take some humor in this beyond just the anal beads, is that in chess, Hans Niemann is attacked because he plays too well. And in poker, mm. <laughs> Robbie J. Lude is attacked because she played too poorly in his hand, right? And both won. 
Yes, exactly. Jennifer Shahadi is a two-time U.S. women's chess champion. She plays poker professionally. She writes books. Her last one is called Chess Queens. Jen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It was a blast. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. And now it is time for After Balls, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was okay. Chess, poker, baseball. There was also a cheating scandal last week in the world of competitive fishing. The story was all over social and regular media, broken by the Toledo Blade, picked up by the New York Times, Washington Post, and many others. The incident happened in Cleveland at an event called the Lake Erie Walleye Trail. The tournament director, a guy named Jason Fisher, was weighing one team's catch, five walleye. He said looked to be about 20 pounds total. I'd have to agree. But when the fish clocked in at around 34 pounds, Fisher got suspicious. He told the Post that he ran his hand over the fish and felt something hard. Then he started slicing them open in front of all the competitors, and all hell broke loose. Let's listen. Call the fucking cops. I don't want anybody to touch these guys. I want to go to jail. Tell the cops. It's You you fucked over a lot of people, man. They've been doing this shit for years. Cheating motherfuckers, man. Piece of fucking shit. You got a fucking boat. You got thousands of fucking dollars. We got weights and fish. That didn't sound like audio from January 6th, y'all. <laughs> we should run the language warning twice at the top of uh, yeah. this week's show. Also, Joel, I haven't heard anything like that since the last time Ole Miss frat boys got together. Oh, man, that little rumble between the sig-ups. And, uh, yeah, that was amazing. All right, so the fish were stuffed with lead balls, nine of them each the size of an egg, totaling seven pounds. At one point in the video, uh, Fisher pulls out a walleye fillet jammed down the fish's throats along with the weights, apparently to cushion Wait, he shoved, shoved fish down the fish? Yes! <laughs> <laughs> to keep the weights sort of like as, uh, as bumpers, to keep the weights from uh, bumping against each other and making noise. And that was in a story by Darcy Egan in the Cleveland Plain Dealer. On the video, you could also hear Fisher tell one of the guilty fishermen, Jacob Runyon, 
who was watching impassively as the fish and his reputation were gutted to leave (laughs) and also ask the angry fisher mob not to touch the guys. Egan reported that the other fishermen on the team, these are teams of two, Chase Kaminsky had locked himself in his truck. But let's be clear, this is serious shit. The screaming dudes in the video are all wearing shirts and jackets and caps plastered with logos for boat manufacturers and bait and lure makers and the names of tournaments and cartoon drawings of walleye. There were more than 32 man teams in the Lake Erie walleye trail event competing for serious money. The lead stuffing fishermen would have won first place in nearly 30 grand in prizes. And after winning three earlier Lake Erie walleye trail events, they were about to be crowned team of the year. The New York Times quoted a pro angler named Ross Robertson, who said that like in chess and poker, technology has made the sport more competitive, increasing fishing ability, and also the incentive to cheat. Robertson described for the time some common cheats, having someone deliver pre-caught fish, fishing in prohibited areas, putting fish in cages before a competition, and stuffing fish with ice before the weigh-in so that the ice will melt and leave no forensic trail. Events do appear to take steps to combat cheating. According to the Times story, Jason Fisher, the tournament director, oh, I just realized his name is Fisher, said the disgraced winners had taken voice stress and polygraph tests for his tournaments, a common practice for winners of such events, and had passed. After the event, Fisher posted on the tournament's Facebook page, anglers, I'm still at a loss for words, and for that I apologize. All loot, Lake Erie Walleye Trail, all loot anglers deserve better. I will take time and figure out how I can solidify the integrity of our sport here on Erie. Mm. The post has around 100 comments, all sympathetic and supportive. Fisher turned over the evidence, the fish and the lead balls, and the walleye filet, I guess, to the Ohio Department of Natural Resources, which the Post reported is investigating and could refer the case to the Cuyahoga County prosecutor. More important, let's hope that Jason and all the honest fishermen can recover quickly and get back in their boats and tie their lines and weigh their catches with confidence and honesty. The loot season might be over, but the 2022 Lake Erie fall brawl is just a couple of weeks away. Before before we move on here, I just somebody write in and explain to me what the police were supposed to do there because they kept asking to get somebody to call the police. Uh, what? How were they supposed to mediate they this fraud. dispute? They're trying to walk away with oh, okay. thirty grand, Joel. Come somebody on, somebody let me know. I want to know. Okay, <laughs> is it true that this got discovered because they banged the fish full of weights against the garbage can? Oh. Uh, notoriously clean uh, LSU football program over here, trying to throw some shots. I hear deflect, you. Deflect, deflect, deflect. That's the strategy. I get it. Josh, what's your We Got Weights in Fish? <laughs> My We Got Weights in Fish is, as we discussed, a lot of uh, talk of cheating on this podcast. There's a lot of controversy over who has the so called real home run record. You got Barry Bonds, Juicer, Mark McGuire and Sammy hmm. Sosa, Juicers, Roger Maris. Uh, the thing, it's it's really hilarious that Roger Maris is now talked about as the guy with the real record when the kind of prevailing attitude at the time was that his record needed an asterisk. 
because he did it in a 162-game season while Babe Ruth hit 60 in a 154-game season. So Ruth hit 60, the record that Maris surpassed in uh, 1927. But Ruth first took the single-season record eight years before that in 1919. Um, That was the first season where Ruth played in more than 100 games as a hitter. The last season where he was anything close to a full-time pitcher um, Jacob Pomeranke wrote a story for Sabre.org, Society for American Baseball Research, about that 1919 home run chase. Ruth tied the AL record on July 29th when he hit his 16th home run of the season. Uh, that record had been held by the immortal Sox Seabold, according to another Sabre article. In spite of being somewhat maligned by the Philadelphia press for his rotund figure and voracious appetite, Sox Seabold at 5'11 and somewhere around 200 pounds was a popular figure with the fans and his teammates. So good for Sox, but we digress. Ruth broke the AL record on August 14th against the White Sox, driving in Brago Roth, a man once described as the exasperating grain of dust in the eye of whatever ball team he became associated with. Not big, Ouch. Not big Brago fans. But back to Babe. On September 8th, 1919, He, for the first time, broke the major league record of 25 home runs that had been held by a fellow named Buck Freeman. Um, But wait, according to Jacob Pomeranke's Sabre.org article, then someone discovered an old-time slugger, Ed Williamson, of the Chicago White Stockings, who'd been credited with 27 home runs in 1884. So, are you telling me that 103 years ago, there was a controversy about who had the real home run record? Yes, I am. Ed Williamson, known in some sources as Ned Williamson, did indeed hit 27 home runs in 1884. He played for the White Stockings at Lake Park in Chicago. There's some disagreement on the dimensions of Lake Park, but again, according to some sources, the right field fence may have been less than 200 feet from home plate, which is less than a standard Little League field. And now I will quote a different article uh, by John C. Tattersall, from the Baseball Research Journal. During the years prior to 1884, the prevailing ground rule provided that a ball batted over the fence at Lake Park was to be scored as a two-base hit, a double. But sometime before the start of the 1884 season, some brilliant strategist in the Chicago camp, recognizing the ability of the Chicago batters, both right and left-handed alike, to punch balls over the right field fence, decided to go all out and legalize an over-the-right-field fence hit as a home run. Then the fun started. All right, back to me. The fun involved 197 home runs in just 56 games, and Ed slash Ned Williamson hit 25 of those home runs and just two on the road. In six seasons before that, Ed slash Ned had just eight home runs in 1975 at bats. Now, Joel, unclear whether he was taking witch hazel or i don't know he was his bodily humors were out of balance the the, the contemporaneous <laughs> sources don't indicate but um you can't understand given that home road breakdown why major league baseball historian john thorne described the ed ned record as tainted but you can also understand why 138 years later i'm going to say that ned ed's critics are jealous losers So sure, (laughs) Babe Ruth broke the old record on September 24th, 1919. He did end up with 29 home runs that year, setting the record. But here at 27 Outfitters, we know who the real real home run champ is, even if we're not sure about his first name. So hail Ed, and also just to be safe, hail Ned. Ned. 
Man. I mean, people have been arguing about this boring-ass record forever, man. It's great. It's the best thing, Barry, best thing Barry Bonds ever did is to make people frustrated about this forever and put the record so far out of reach that we have to continue this. So probably, I mean, certainly the rest of my life. Um, Can I just we'll point see. out that Babe Ruth and Roger Maris, both left-handed batters, played in Yankee Stadium where the distance down the right field line was, Joel, you want to make a guess? In the old, old Yankee Stadium, the original Yankee Stadium? How how far it was? Yeah, yeah, two two seventy five, something like that. Close two ninety six. Really? Oh wow! Like I was close. I was close. Hey, also one thing about Babe Ruth that a lot of people, I mean, it's, you know, it's possible that some of those baseball players were playing against a, a Negro player when they played against Babe Ruth. There's, we don't we don't know for sure. So, you know, we don't have his twenty one in me. That is our show for today. Our producer and genetic counselor is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.